G'day, this is Jared McKenna. Andrew Hart. And we want to welcome you to a new season of Inverse, where we're exploring with surprising people how the good book can turn our world of domination, exploitation, alienation, and oppression upside down. Much like our Nonviolent Atonement series, our new Liberating Liturgies series will be interspersed alongside our usual Inverse interviews to encourage a more healing, liberative, and ultimately Christ-like embodiment of Christian formation and community. Now, you'll be pleased to know via our Patreon, there are many ways to connect to this global community that are seeking to be formed in a liberative life of discipleship through offerings like Decolonizing Sunday School, BIPOC and White Work Spaces for unlearning the realities and subtleties of white supremacy, as well as our Family Brunch for connecting to the community and our Inverse Economic Justice Initiative. Inverse might be in the top 1% of listened to podcasts in the world, but it is only thanks to the generosity of a committed community of people like you contributing to the Patreon that make Inverse possible. So we just want to say thank you. So why liberating liturgies? Well, Drew, as you have noticed and call out in your own work, Christendom is crumbling. The chaplains of the establishment express anxiety that Christianity is no longer at the center of many our societies. Yet, as we enter the intimate stillness of prayer, we've been feeling something very different. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Come out, my people, from all forms of domination. Follow Jesus in the Exodus from all oppression. Desire not to be the religious legitimization of empire, but instead seek first God's alternative to all forms of domination and God's healing justice, and all the necessities of life will be met in community together. Hmm. Maybe it can be simply stated with a question. How is it that people claim to love God, talk of following Jesus and declare they are filled with the Holy Spirit, yet they fear their neighbor as they loathe themselves, curse the poor that Jesus blessed, reject the refugee rather than welcome the stranger, and bomb adversaries instead of loving their enemies? Something is seriously wrong in the formation of those who are called to imitate Christ. Over the noise of those who beat pulpits and stand on stages and stadiums demanding we give more money to move up some ladder of success or celebrity to become quote-unquote influencers, as mighty men or women of God, we instead want to invite you, away from the lights and the smoke machines and the hype, to hear that still, small voice still calling you and for me to become humble servants of Jesus amongst those with their backs against the wall. What if instead of taking back, insert certain nation with a history of Christian colonization, what if instead we were formed as a people seeking the peace of the lands we are on for the welfare of all by living the love revealed in Jesus? Now, liturgy literally translates from the Greek as work of the people, a term initially used for the elite rich benefactors in Greek society who donated some of their wealth to the supposed common good, like providing a warship to the state or a choir to the public theater. As Cameroonian philosopher Achille Membe writes about the digital technologies that flood our society, these actions in ancient Greece were also a form of propaganda. Formatting as many minds as possible, shaping people's desires, recrafting their symbolic worlds, blurring the reality between fact and fiction, and eventually colonizing their unconscious. The early church, a movement primarily made up not of elites, but the masses that were denied their dignity, like women, people who were enslaved, and the poor, they subverted this term. 
for them, liturgy, that is the work of the people for the common good, became a way of describing their worship of the nonviolent Messiah. Jesus, who affirmed they too were made in the image of God. Liturgy became the term they used of the worship where they continued to open to the grace that saved them as the divine power that would also form them to participate in God's liberating love. Liturgy became the term to describe what they did as they gathered so that the image of God was not simply a characteristic of the soul, but the calling for their communal life as a whole to be formed in the likeness of God for the healing of creation and liberation of all. In this series, we want to explore what if instead of being liberated from liturgies, healing looks like being formed in liturgies that liberate. So come on a journey with us as we refuse to allow Christianity to be defined and dominated and monopolized by blasphemous forms of faith that wield the name of Christ as a weapon. Instead, we invite you to learn from traditions where the name of Christ has embodied the liberating love that has conquered the grave. Welcome to the series with us, friends. Our guest uh, for our podcast today needs no introduction. Uh, I think has been on the podcast twice already. So this is the third visits to Inverse Podcasts. Um, he is the That's senior pastor. Flyer points. Yeah, Freaker Flyer right Points. That's yeah. right. Uh, the senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago uh, is Dr. Otis Moss III, who spent the last two decades practicing and preaching a Black theology that unapologetically calls attention to the problems of mass incarceration, environmental justice, and economic apartheid. He's hailed as one of the 12 most effective preachers in the English-speaking worlds by Baylor University's George Truitt Theological Seminary. He's an NAACP Image Award recipient, an award-winning filmmaker, poet, and professor of homiletics at Mercer University's McCarthy School of Theology in Atlanta. And he's married to Monica Brown, and they are the proud parents of two children. Um, and we're so grateful, especially because of uh, uh, terrific terrific new book um, that just uh, released uh, pretty recently um, that kind of really sparked, again, some of our conversation that we'll be having today. So anyway, uh, Reverend uh, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, uh, welcome again to Inverse Podcast. Thank you so much. It is a delight to be with you all and the entire uh, Inverse community here. Uh, just, just wonderful to be with you all today. Oh, it's a it's a gift for us. Um, Otis, as Drew mentioned, this whole series is inspired by you. Um, uh, your incredible offering, Dancing in the Dark, um, is beautiful. I mean, people did all kinds of things with their their time um, in in lockdown, and the fact that you were able to to pastor during a, a difficult time of a pandemic and produce something as beautiful as this uh, is an incredible gift. In particular, the sixth chapter, um, Practices of Prophetic Grief, um, it it really impacted me. I think I've literally read it like eight times. It's incredibly powerful. We'd love to give you just an opportunity to speak to this latest offering that you've given the world. And if you're willing, um, maybe speak to some of the horror that happened in Charleston in 2015 and the witness of Emma, uh, Mother Emmanuel, AME, 
um, that shapes your incredible meditation in the sixth chapter. So maybe first the, the general book and, um, if you're willing, that particular chapter. Uh, the book really comes out of just witnessing over the years, how should I say it, a spiritual itch that people have. They're attempting to scratch that itch with materialism, clout chasing, you name it, usually something physical, and they end up in the same space where we are trying to ingest food that's not nutritious, and then we find out that we are still hungry. Hmm. I was attempting to try and, and kind of answer on a pastoral level, uh, what are the principles, what are the strategies, uh, what, are the, what are the tent poles that we need to place in order to build build our particular house uh, to allow us to thrive. And, th and that's where the book uh, uh, was birthed from, was birthed from that, from that space about dancing uh, in, in the darkness. Um, I was not interested in, in some of the, uh, how should I put it, um, Christian writings that have a tendency to have the <laughs> Uh, very happy go lucky. Everything is all right. Just pray, and it's good. Um, I was I was interested in some other questions uh, around chaos, uh, questions around mm -hmm. love, justice, around grief, and essentially the stories. Uh, stories. You have the right story. You change. You can change the world. You can change your life. Yeah. Uh, stories are empowering. Uh, stories are sacred. Uh, stories have the authority to decolonize or colonize, depending upon which story mm -hmm. you take hold of. And Dancing in the Darkness is an attempt to uh, spark the radical imagination that's an inherent in every human being that God has already placed uh, in us if we tap into the right story. And mm -hmm. so I'm a preacher and I traffic in stories, and so there are a bunch of stories uh, in, in the book from history where we can witness God and from my own experience, where I think we've give, been given a glimpse of holy mischief, of mm. God working. And that's where uh, the book comes from. And I, and I thank you for, for lifting up the, the, the idea of prophetic grief and the Emmanuel Church. We had the opportunity to last year to be in Charleston to visit uh, Emmanuel wow. uh, and hear from the people of Emmanuel and share that it has been part of their history that forces have tried to destroy the church. The church was uh, burned down several times uh, simply because uh, they had people who uh, were a part of the, the Reconstruction movement. Uh, mm -hmm. The church was attacked because they were part of the uh, Underground Railroad. Uh, mm -hmm because they proclaimed on Sunday that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that didn't fit a Confederate narrative. Wow. And it was really interesting to hear from the elders to say that death and beauty are a part of our church hmm. because we choose to be black in Charleston, resist and uh, act as if, you know, God made us. Wow. And, and that's a problem. <laughs> that's, hmm. that's, a, that's a real problem. Yeah. And, and and that's where the, the the idea of prophetic grief comes from. It really comes from a conversation that my father and I had. We we preached on it some years ago, and he said something. He said, "You've got to be careful about pathetic grief." Mm -hmm. He said, "There's prophetic, and then there's pathetic. Pathetic, mm -hmm. pathetic grief 
just mourns and moves to despair. Yeah. Pathetic grief mourns and raises the question, how do I change this moment? Yeah. Those are the two differences. And you move to prophetic grief when you are in conversation with the community and in conversation uh, with our God. And that allows you to move to prophetic grief. And many times we we miss uh, when people are grieving prophetically because we don't have the language to understand nor interpret what they're saying. Mm-hmm. So when people in Charleston are using the language of forgiveness, we keep hearing a different type of language. We keep thinking Ooh, forgiveness yeah, yeah. in terms of I'm going to, you know, kumbaya, have dinner with you. It's all mm-hmm. good. No, no, no. Yeah. We're not saying forgiveness in terms of releasing accountability. We're talking about uh, no longer will you have power over me. Yeah. I use the story that um, uh, it's quite funny uh, that that in our church, you know, people who like leave church, you know, for for particular reasons, I'm leaving church because you know the person that I I used to date, they still go there. I was like, well, we got three services, which you know you don't have to see <laughs> brother anymore. You know, so you don't understand. I come into this place and it just makes me feel a certain way. And 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 when someone has that much power over you, mm-hmm. that an individual can turn you away from the altar so that you face them all the time. It's problematic. Yeah. And so prophetic grief is raising the question, how do I cleanse myself so that you don't have authority over me anymore? Mm. I've been wounded. I've been hurt. All of that. I acknowledge that. But when I say forgiveness, I'm not talking about the idea of let's go have dinner. I'm saying right. that you don't have authority over me anymore. Right. And we need a different word because forgiveness in the Western sense has been so co-opted That's in right. such a way that it becomes destructive to people saying, oh, you have to forgive. You have to forget. No, I'm not going to forget. That's right. I can't. My right. mm. <laughs> neuroscience says I can't. Mm. <laughs> it's, not, it's not possible for me to forget which means that I then have to release myself from you having power over me. I'm not going to allow you to define my destiny anymore. And that's what the Mm. people of Charleston were attempting to do out of that African Methodist Episcopal tradition of Richard Allen. Mm. That's what they were attempting to say that, you know, people like Chris Haynes and other people, they just could not understand what the people in Charleston were attempting to say to their community and to the world. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. As you're talking, I remember when it was happening both in person as well as on like all my social media feeds, like the black community was having a big debate, right? And so much Mm -hmm. of it was based on how people understood what forgiveness was, right? Mm. So many, it was interesting how many had internalized this kind of cheapened, domesticated, vision of forgiveness. Um, but then others were coming back in conversation with this liberative understanding of what it means for those that have been harmed, uh, that kind of release, right? That doesn't allow uh, others to have power over you. And I think that, um, yeah, that 
that's a live conversation that's ongoing, mm-hmm. even within the black community, mm-hmm. depending on how one has been formed, right, to even think about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe as a follow up to that question, you know, obviously, some of what we want to be exploring in this series is, uh, you know, liberating liturgies, right? So mm-hmm. I'm really curious about how you would name the particularities of the prophetic black church that could make such a response like that kind of forgiveness like what is it what are what are the specific ways that people are being formed to kind of grow into that kind of uh deeper release and liberation um that doesn't allow the power of those who've oppressed them or harmed them to to keep hold over them you know that within the the the, the african-american uh church tradition or black spirituality there is a theological narrative that is often not named. Hmm. Many times people think the black church is the white church in black face, which right. would minstrality. Uh, hmm. It's not a minstrel show. Right. Uh, there's an actual theological narrative. There is a cultural and anthropological underpinning right. uh, in, in the tradition and I'm, I'm talking about the black church tradition, not churches that just have black people. That's right. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. there are some churches that just have black people, yep. um, but are not functioning within the black church tradition. Yep. And so we have to clarify those pieces. I will not name any names. Uh, <laughs> 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 that. Okay, I'm not, I'm not getting in trouble here. I'm not going to get in trouble. Uh, I'm not going to go there uh, today. If, if you need some names, you talk to Dr. Sadler. He's on here. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> he'll, he'll give you the names. Uh, And in this particular tradition, one, that the the liturgy recognizes that you cannot put a demarcation between sacred and secular, Mm -hmm. that they merge together and are one. So Sunday is not the day just to encounter God. You encounter God every day through Mm -hmm. everything. That's why grandma shouts even when she's cooking. That's right. Because something sacred is happening in the midst of her preparing a meal for her grandchildren. Mm-hmm. That's why, and I use, I use the story all the time, that uh, when, when I was smaller, um, there was this little, little bougie group that my, uh, my mom threw me in called Jack and Jill. Um, and as a result, um, they would go to these little, you know, things every once in a while. They had this concert that was going on. I didn't want to go to the concert. The concert was, the barge was opening up and then Luther Vandross was going to be the main act. Ooh. I didn't want to go because I was a hip hop head. If right, you had said right. Rock Kim, I'm there. Hey, I'm not game. going to see game. Barge, okay? <laughs> the only reason I went is because there was some girl I thought was real cute. That's the only reason I went. <laughs> I was trying to talk mm-hmm. to her. That, I mean, I'm honest. I'm just being honest. And so we get there. DeBards does their thing and whatnot. You know, they're singing, I like it. Okay, that's great. Um, and then after that, Luther comes on. My mm. sister was a Luther fan. I wasn't. I was into hip hop. Okay. And Luther begins to sing, a house is not a home. No. <laughs> Lord, have mercy. <laughs> My gosh. And I'm, I'm transfixed. And it's in this place called the front row 
Mm. in Cleveland, Ohio. And front row is, it's a circular stage, but the stage turns. Mm. No matter where you are, you're going to get a front row seat. It's not really big place. And he's doing these runs. He, I mean, I'm like, I've never heard a human being sing like this in my life. (laughs) And then on the third row, the sister stands up and starts shouting, thank you, Jesus. Mm-hmm. She acting like she in church. Then I looked and I said, she goes to my church. <laughs> and I realized at that moment, the sacred and secular had come together. Sorry. Here we are at the front row, but the spirit was loose in such a way that the sister on the third row recognized what Luther was doing was Mm -hmm. not just singing a house is not a home, but the pattern of the pentatonic singing that he was doing, hitting the two and the four, goes all the way back to Mali and Senegal and Ghana. She's shouting for something that says, uh, it could not be destroyed in the transatlantic slave trade. She, Mm -hmm. you know, this, all of this is happening in the midst of, of, of that moment. Sacred and secular do not have a demarcation. When, you say sacred is here, secular is there. It allows you to worship on Sunday and hold slaves on Monday Mm. because you have a demarcation. Mm. So your faith never informs your living. And in America, we essentially, America's religion is capitalism. And Christianity is essentially a form of that uh, is capitalism and ecclesiastical garments. That's right. Because we never allow that which is sacred to become preeminent or the ultimate concern as Niebuhr would speak of it. Mm. And as a result, the idol of the market and materialism became uh, the, the god of of America, the God that speaks of manifest destiny, the God that speaks of slavery, the God that speaks of of patriarchy. The God, you know, you just go on and on and on and mm-hmm. on. Um, and so, one aspect of the the Black Church tradition is the obliteration of sacred and secular. Mm-hmm. Another aspect of the Black Church tradition, um, uh, also in, in, inherent uh, within that, is as Howard Thurman talks about the fact that. Uh, God speaking to those who have their backs against the wall. Oh, that's mm. right. And there's this liberative notion. So Thurman has a statement in deep, I think it's deep as the river, where he says, and I'm just paraphrasing, uh, that one of the most revolutionary things to ever happen to, 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 to marginalized people was the moment they knew they were loved by God and they were made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. At that moment, Revolt, resistance, and resilience takes off in one spirit. That you know that there's something greater than you and that you are loved and you are created. And within the Black church tradition, that was, uh, that was preeminent. So let me give you another historical fact that people kind of freak out when I, when I mention it. There were 326 reported slave revolts mm. in the South during the antebellum period, 321 of them started in church. Mm -hmm. So in other words, when people of African descent got together, they obliterate sacred and secular. They recognize that God is speaking to those who have their backs against the wall. 
then the first question that is raised, then we got to get up out of here. And how is that then demonstrated? It's demonstrated in a double entendre of the way in which people communicate. Mm-hmm. Swing low, sweet chariot, chariot. coming forth mm-hmm. to carry me home. Oh, that's a nice song about heaven. No, it's not. I'm talking about getting up out of here. Right. Um, well, mm-hmm. w- what's the next song we're going to sing? Well, I'm going to sing a song called Down by the Riverside. Why am I singing? Mm -hmm. Because I'm sending a signal to my son who is escaping tonight, and they need to go down by the riverside. But then as I'm singing, I start talking about, you know, God's going to trouble the water. Well, I'm doing a remix that tells you, get in the water so the dogs Mm -hmm. don't come after you. Mm -hmm. All of this, this power and this beauty that's rooted in even in the music that obliterates sacred and secular. That's why blues and gospel are the exact same thing. The Mm -hmm. only difference between the two is the lyric on top. One Mm -hmm. focuses more on the existential end and the other leans into the eschatological. That's that's, that's the only, only difference. There's no difference in the chords. The chords are the exact same thing. They are exact. One just, you know, just just deals with pain and the other one deals with possibility. That's it. Um, And then the the, the other piece in the African-American tradition is spirit possession. Hmm. You know, you know, uh, the idea of we call it Pentecost or Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism is a movement. It is not uh, necessarily denomination. It it Mm -hmm. is very African. The idea of of the possession of the spirit, that the spirit is loose. And Pentecostals are known for being conservative on one level, but they are like incredibly progressive on another because what's funny about Pentecostals is spirit trumps doctrine. Yes, right. So mm-hmm. a Pentecostal bishop can say to a woman, you're not supposed to preach, you're a woman. And the sister can say, well, I've been called to preach. The spirit spoke to me. Well, I guess you have to start a church. <laughs> they, <laughs> it, just, it just won't be here um, because they can't intervene because of the deep respect that the spirit trumps the doctrine because the doctrine cannot contain the spirit. So, so those are just kind of just elements that, that flow out of the, the, the black church tradition, not just churches that have black people. Yeah. 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 I just, um, uh, I mentioned this as a way of getting into the next question, but as you were sharing about African-American spirituals, um, I, I learned about that in the 90s by watching a certain TV show um, that starred a, a, a certain uh, figure who's still in the collective consciousness but has fallen out of favour after um, his unfortunate interactions with the comedian known as Chris Rock and maybe bad witness protection. We won't mention the brother's name in particular, but people will know who it is when I say that. I learned that from Arnie Vivian um, teaching in the Fresh Prince's school as a guest. Um, uh, does anybody else remember that episode? Anybody else uh, know the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? <laughs> um, and that was the first time uh, I heard any of that. I mentioned that, um, A, because it's funny, B, because um, for those of us who have not been formed um, uh, in the grief and grace uh, that is the tradition that has formed you and and formed Drew and Dr Sadler and Denise and so many other people who are on this call, for those of us who um, uh, aren't part of the African-American spiritual tradition known as the Black Church, um, 
how how can we approach this tradition in such ways um, that we do not come stealing, killing, and destroying? Mm. Uh, because there is so much appropriation. Um, I just watched the little uh, Richard documentary. Uh, I was preaching in Melbourne, and that's what was on the plane. And I mean, there's no Elton John, let alone Harry Styles, without Little Richard, right? And yet, there, there's so little. He, he got so little credit for everything that passed through his soul and he gifted to the world that uh, whether it's the Beatles or the Rolling Stones and all the rest, how do we not find ourselves in a situation um, like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones where um, those of us who are European and elsewhere around the world encounter your phenomenal tradition, uh, whether it's the arts or the aesthetics or the music or um, uh, what what you've just laid out in terms of a little sketch uh, in terms of the black church prophetic tradition, how do we approach that in such ways that um, uh, we become uh, humble students grafted in into something that is not our own, um, uh, just like we have been in the gospel, um, without um, without a form of kind of cultural uh, supersessionism mm. that forgets where these things have come from? Would you speak to that? Because there's so many of us who um, uh, are so deeply formed uh, and our lives are a result of the gifts of the tradition that has formed you, and yet we don't want to fall prey to this way of praying upon a tradition instead of um, blessing what has blessed us. Oh, that's a great question, Jared, and I appreciate that. I would first say that you have to role like David Bowie. Um, <laughs> Come on. Yeah, because David Bowie did something that was so beautiful and powerful on several instances when he was interviewed about people talking about his music and things of that nature. He called MTV out for its mm. refusal to play uh, the music of, you know, of, of Black artists. And he says that the, you, you, the entire station is built on Black music. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was just going in talking about his influences. He was real clear. And then in an interview with Brian Gumbel, uh, mm -hmm. he stopped Brian Gumbel and said that um, the music that is doing the, the work of social protest, and this was, was probably in the 90s, he said that has something to say is hip hop music. And there needs mm -hmm. to be an examination of it uh, in, in a way. He said, we, we're doing music that is canned by corporations. Mm. Um, we're not innovating anything. All we're doing is just replaying what we heard other artists who were innovators do. It was, mm -hmm. it was quite, I mean, this, this is David Bowie. I mean, yeah. musical genius, David Bowie. I mean, I love David Bowie. Yeah, and David Bowie <laughs> is just, just being this champion here. But the other piece is, is learning to to be a guest mm. in, in someone's house. And that's one thing that many of us, we don't learn. If I want to, uh, to learn from um, communities that I'm not uh, directly related from, I've gotta be a guest in the house. Mm. I don't act like I own the house. I'm a guest, I'm learning, I'm a student, and in that particular space. And America has difficulty with any type of guest policy mm -hmm. um, because it, America does not want to be a guest. Mm -hmm. it wants to be the owner 
or I should say the feudal lord uh, mm -hmm. in many ways in the way that America wants to function. And so we have not been taught the spiritual civility centered around being a guest in someone's house. It was uh, George Tinker uh, in great mm. indigenous thinker and uh, who I was blessed to have a class with. Wow. Uh, just blessed me so when he, he, he shared with me um, he said, you know, um, Otis, within the African-American commu uh, community, you, you're utilizing the, the Exodus narrative. You know, that's, that's a painful narrative for me to hear. Mm -hmm. And he said, reason being is because I'm the Canaanite. Mm -hmm. And the same narrative, I heard the same thing as Masala, a uh, South African uh, theologian. He said, uh, my African-American brothers attached to the Exodus narrative because of their cultural location. For me, I'm the Canaanite. So I can't hear Exodus in the same way as those who are from the U.S. So learning to be a guest gives you ears, gives you new techniques, and keeps you from being... And hear, hear me, this is, this is not, I'm not throwing shade here, just like, but it keeps you from being um, a simple um, accomplice in, 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 and an ally. Because I think that the term ally and accomplice is, 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 is problematic. Mm. And, and an ally during World War II, they can sign a new treaty and say that they're not working with you. Uh, an accomplice can <laughs> uh, work out a deal with the DA so they don't go to jail. But if you're mm -hmm. a conspirator, <laughs> you roll with the community yeah. that you're rolling with. Mm -hmm. And being a guest allows you to develop the spirituality of co-conspirator. Wow. Mm. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I think... Um, I. You were, as you were described, I was thinking about how often it is that so many people are informed in such ways that they invert, right? It's literally an inversion of the organic relationship of guest and host, right? It's like yeah. having to invert it, always hosts, always in control, always landlord, always dominating. And so I think um, there is something about a formation of a way of being in the world that's really at the heart of what you're getting at. And so I'm getting at, again, this idea of liturgies again, um, you know, so you are, you have the privilege of uh, being raised in literally a civil rights home um, mm. to, you know, having folks like Dr. King and so many others passing by as just a normal part of life. Um, and so Dr. King was known for, um, naming, well, he often was it the uh, the triple evils um, mm. of racism, materialism. King obviously was talking about capitalism and militarism, right? Um, and so we can think about these as rival liturgies. And mm. I'd be interested mm -hmm. to hear from you. We want to give you an opportunity um, to name what do you see as competing liturgies that demand our desires, our imaginations and bodies in their service? And, and what, what do we need to be aware of in the midst of the kind of contemporary society that we're navigating today? Mm, mm, um, I, I think without, without a doubt, patriarchy, without a doubt, mm -hmm. is a particular liturgy that uh, steals our imagination and vision. 
Mm. Um, I use the example, just a little cute little story in the book, uh, but it was, was, you know, quite funny, uh, you know, looking back on it when we were attempting to honor people in the sports realm uh, who were a part of the BLM, we're trying to support BLM and, you know, the mm. I can't breathe t-shirts that uh, different sports figures were wearing and supporting Colin Kaepernick. Mm. And on the time that we were designing the bulletin cover, uh, about half of our worship and arts com uh, committee community team was not present for a variety of reasons. Some weddings, they had to go check on family, what, whatever it may be. So it was a small group. And we were so proud of this bulletin. And we, when we had the bulletin published on that Sunday. When we every the, the following week, we always do a review of the previous week of worship. And the person who leads our worship and arts team uh, meeting is was was a minister by the name of Minister uh, Janae Colvin, who is a chaplain at DuPaul now University. And she said, yeah, I, yeah, church was great, but I had one issue is that I opened up the bulletin and I saw all men. I mm -hmm. said, no, that the WNBA, well, they were the first people to stand up uh, in reference to this issue. And I was like, oh, my gosh, um, everybody in the room, they were all men. Mm -hmm. And everybody in the room was lifting up their heroes. Everybody was calling out the people that they, you know, that that motivated them. And guess what? They were all male. And so the next week we then had to publish imagery to expand our imagination. That was the imagery of women uh, that who were a part of the movement, present and historical. We had to do that. And as a result, we were able to create a new liturgy and knowing that no matter, and that's the, the beauty and power and causes the humility that no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've read, we are inadequate. Mm. We are always inadequate. And that's why we have to do things in concert. You know, this is, I heard my uh, father say it this way one time. He said that, uh, you can all soul you can sing a solo, but you will never sound like a choir. Mm. There are things you can only do when you stand with other people. Mm. And and so we we ended up being a trio that ended up messing up the song on Sunday. Uh <laughs> it was three guys. So that patriarchy is problematic. Mm. The other is the all of these liturgies that are antithetical to the spirit being loose the power of god being present limit the human imagination hmm. imagination is what god gives us in genesis we choose to limit it when god says uh, um he creates humanity uh, that uh, God had to imagine that which God created. And when he said, you, you are created in God's image, what, or is it your hands and feet? No, we have the ability to imagine, to see things that do not exist and function as if it already is. And the most dangerous aspect for any empire is people of imagination. 
because they can conceive that the empire is no more. They can conceive of what tomorrow or seven generations in the future will be. And that is the danger. And we have to consistently work to nurture and decolonize our imagination. And that's the beautiful thing. That's why I believe that any person doing any work around transformation, you need to spend some time around children. Mm -hmm. And just, I mean, they're killing a game. I mean, they, yeah. they have imaginations that we lose when we get older. Mm. You know, the greatest toy I ever got my children, the greatest toy was a refrigerator box. Yeah, All the stuff the truth. they had been bought. <laughs> the thing they loved the most as kids was That's a big right. box. Uh -huh. They got in that box. I come in the room one day and they said, Dad, can't you see we're in a rocket about to go to the moon? Mm. I was like, oh, that's fantastic. This is in a box. I leave the room. I come back. I said, can I get in the rocket? And they're like, can't you see it's a boat? I was like, I'm sorry. I didn't know. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> but their imaginations were on fire mm. for weeks upon weeks until that box just fell apart. Yeah. Um, but it was just a cardboard box. And as adults, we lose the ability with all the, the resources we have to even do the simple things that children do all the time. Mm. Can't you imagine a better world? Mm. Can't you see people flourishing? Can't you see the triple evils of racism and, and militarism uh, being destroyed along with poverty? Can't you envision uh, patriarchy and misogyny being cast? Can't you envision that? No, 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 no. Because our imaginations are colonized. Mm. Oof. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I love you for so many reasons, but I just want to acknowledge that... Um, I'm so moved that you could have taken that conversation any number of ways and you chose to publicly confess your story around what happens um, uh, when um, there's only one wing of the church that is flapping. And if the, the sisters um, aren't in the room, um, uh, that all the siblings that are needed um, to um, be, be around the table, it's really powerful and there's so much in our culture that actually forms us the cultural liturgies that form us around um not doing that prophetic thing that you just did which is actually owning and publicly learning in such ways that shame is removed and you invite people in even in telling that story into that process um i'm aware that that's a learned behavior and some of the things we're trying to get at in this liberating liturgy um series is that um, uh, there are many churches in my part of the world that think that um, uh, what it is to share the gospel is to be relevant to a culture that um, it ignores, if not targets the poor's poor at the cost of the earth, mm -hmm. and we want to be relevant to that culture instead of um, being authentic to what we see God to be in Jesus, which invites us on a whole different journey. You've just mm -hmm. been talking about your children and you also mentioned your dad. And maybe we should mention that this Sunday at Trinity, um, it's Father's Day in the US. So uh, if people want to tune in, um, Otis Moss III and Otis Moss Jr., this time via Zoom, I think. Um, uh, oh, he's going to be there in person. He's going to be there in person? He will be there in person. Oh, that's 
Well, uh, we'll be there in spirit. <laughs> the, the, the other side of the world, but um, I, I love watching you both preach together. Yep, um, yep. Watching you both preach together and being there in person has literally changed my life. Um, uh, uh, Brother Rodney and I, uh, Dr. Sadler, were talking about um, Proctor just a little earlier and um, seeing you two do that. We want to tap in to... Um, the liturgies that you were formed in as a child, how is it that you have learned um, confession as a way of being instead of the constant cover-up that often um, people are formed in? Uh, I'm actually interested in in the, um, I mean, mechanics is such a clinical word um, to use, but uh, even the specifics of the tradition um, uh, that you were formed in and how that expressed um, itself um, uh, through the Black prophetic church tradition that you've been a part of. And to make it explicit um, for those who haven't connected the dots, um, uh, your dad was a leader in the freedom movement, popularly known as the civil rights movement um, that has shaped nonviolent movements through the 20th and 21st century. That was the home that you grew up in. Would you invite us into the church and what you experienced of liturgy and how it made you um, who you are? Why is it that these churches produce freedom fighters? Mm. And why is it that so many churches produce people so happy with the status quo, if not actively working against the will of God? Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I did not know that the tradition that I was a part of was anything unusual. I thought it was just completely normative. My, my mother, mm and my father come out of, of the freedom movement. My father was the, one of the architects and organizers of what was called the Atlanta sit-in movement or the Atlanta rights movement is actually what it was formerly called that uh, desegregated Atlanta. My mother was uh, one of the office managers for the Southern Christian leadership conference. Uh, that's, that's, that's how they, they, they met. And, uh, that their belief system that your faith is embodied mm. was infectious to everyone they came in contact with. And so the church I grew up in, Alabama Institutional Baptist Church, interestingly enough, before my father pastored there, a person by the name of O.M. Hoover, who was also, again, a part of that same tradition, who was the organizer in the northern portion of the freedom struggle. And then my father follows him uh, at, at Olivet. Before that, he was in Cincinnati. Before that, he was at Ebenezer. He was a co-pastor with Martin Luther King Sr. and, and all of that. Um, so the church that I grew up in, I thought you were supposed to be a part of some form of community transformation that you embody the the message, the teachings of Jesus Christ, that you're possessed by the spirit, not so you can just speak in tongues, but the spirit should possess you so that you can literally tear down some walls and mm. something completely, utterly new. Mm. I thought that was normative. I, the church I grew up in got on my nerves because we were, they always boycotting something. It's like, can, can I have Pepsi? No, can't have that. Can I have the Coke? No, can't. I mean, it was just always something. I just, my childhood just <laughs> drove me crazy. Really stuff I couldn't eat. You know, we're part of the anti-apartheid movement. I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, come on. You know, it's like, please, you know, is there anything that we can do? Um, 
but that was a, that was a normal part of of growing up. Mm-hmm. And I thought that there were only two churches. I honestly thought there were black churches, and I thought there were just white churches. I said, "Oh, black churches, we do stuff in the community, and the white churches, people just go on Sunday for an hour." Uh, until <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I'm just being honest. Yeah. yeah. Then I go to college, and I find out about these things called denominations. Because I just thought that it didn't make a difference if you were AME, CME, Presbyterian, if you were brethren, if you were reformed, because if you were black, you were catching hell the same way. So it was, mm. it, didn't, it didn't make a difference. Okay. So I go to college and I, I meet people who have been highly influenced by white evangelicalism. I didn't have a name for it then. I just mm. couldn't understand them. I said, you, you don't, you, you believe that everybody going to hell, but you. Really? <laughs> I was like, who are these people? I was like, I, where they, where they, I, I had never seen these people before in my life. My friends joke and call me the Ethiopian of, of, of the bunch. They said, because they said, you, Otis, you, you, you grew up in a different tradition. Y'all, you all were functioning like Ethiopians. Like this has always been and always built. You didn't have any reference to this other stuff. So my first <laughs> encounter with people who were castigating other people in the name of Jesus was in college. Mm-hmm. It wasn't at, at chapel. It was people that you would meet who would refuse to go to chapel. His chapel was too progressive. It was the Martin Luther King Jr. chapel at Morehouse. So they wouldn't dare go in there. That was just, it would, they'd burn up, you know, and just, you know, wow. they immediately, the, uh, you know, the apocalypse would come if they showed up to chapel mm. on forced. And I'm having conversations with people who use the language of Jesus as a weapon. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd never, I'd never had that experience. And Olivet, at Olivet, um, we were a church that recognized no sacred secular separation. What do you do in reference to what is God doing for those who have their backs against the wall? And then the idea of the possession of the spirit. It was a working class church of people who came from uh, through the great migration and these men and women who were deeply proud, not wealthy, uh, but deeply proud and deeply committed to causes. For example, they were so we weren't I wasn't uh, around at the time, but they were so proud of when they pulled their resources together to bring funding so that they could elect the first black mayor in the city of Cleveland, where mm-hmm. uh, they were elated when they could br- bring their pennies together so that they could support a person in 1984 by the name of Reverend Jesse Jackson who ran for president. Um, mm-hmm. Because they always saw what we do in the community is the embodiment and the hands and feet of Jesus. I grew up in a church where there were women deacons, there were uh, women who were, who were pastors, um, uh, Dr. Margaret Mitchell, who was the person who performed the jumping the broom ceremony when I got married. She was our resident African-centered scholar in the church. Mm. And here is this woman who was the assistant pastor, who is also the African scholar in the church. Mm. You know, I'm looking at Two deacons, one from Mississippi, one from Ohio, one by the name of Sam Tidmore, who played with Jim Brown. 
uh, who was a linebacker on the Cleveland Browns, but he's serving communion. But he also pulled, he, he didn't make a whole lot of money in football, but he made enough so that he could he could purchase a Burger King franchise literally in the hood because he just wanted to employ young men and women. I mean, wow. it was the church that I grew up in and an incredibly proud group of people who deeply believed in the village ethic. They yeah. believed in encouraging children. They believed, put, press some pennies in your hand. Uh, they believed that your success was their success. So they showed up to, to things, not, not because I was the PK, but I'm talking about to the young people's programs in the church. And if someone in the church did something, my father was real adamant about that you have to elevate when someone does something um, mm. And so he was always asking young people to stand up and he says, I want to tell you what this young man has done. This is what this young woman is doing. And he was always giving these amazing stories of, I want you to see what this young person is doing. They just got a full scholarship to Kent State University and what they're about to do. You're going to be hearing from this person in the future. It was over and over again. You were encouraged, 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 encouraged over and over. And, and the other thing is, I never heard once in my church a hint of homophobia from the pulpit. Mm. Wow. Wow. Now, let me tell you an interesting story about, about my mother. My mother was a dancer when she was younger. And she she went the person she danced with was was a gentleman who was who was who was gay. And my mom, you know, she just had this very, you know, certain people have very sophisticated theological framings coming from certain areas in the South. And my grandmother, who lived next to uh, a person today, we would say a trans man. And when she got ill, that was the person who took care of her. Um, and so they had this very sophisticated theology where they would go toe to toe with anyone on the street if they said something negative. About someone who who operated uh, same gender loving. I mean, the, my grandmother, my grand, uh, my grandmother and my mother were were, were bad to the bone theologically, mm -hmm. and my father refused on several occasions to even be involved in conversations with other ministers his age. Who were saying we've got to, you got, we got to work. You know, we're worried about X, Y, and Z. He said, "I'm not. I said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not speaking that because." And he would say, "My friend was Bayard Rustin." That's right. Mm, wow. Not doing that. Mm -hmm. So because of relationship, that's right. They 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 had a different narrative. Mm. They had a deep respect and, and, and love for, for, for people. And they, they believe that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Mm. And anyone who uses language of removing someone from the family of God mm. is making the claim they are God. Yeah. Wow. And this is maybe one of the distinctives. Um, uh, that hasn't been made 
uh, avert, but you've you've brought it out here um, that you find it is prevalent right across whether it's like Ethiopian, Greek, uh, Russian, Macedonian Orthodoxy is that um, we are saved together and uh, we are a community mm -hmm. together. It's a her hermeneutic of um, what it is to take one's baptism seriously is to weep over the sins of others as if they were your own and rejoice in the joy of others as if it was your own, mm. um, this sense of what it is to be a village. And um, I, I watch you week in, week out, um, uh, declare that the doors of the church are open and uh, people are given an opportunity to respond personally to the gospel, but it is made explicitly clear that you are joining a village um, uh, and, and part of that is um, uh, the it's made explicit with the words um, the best church this um, side <laughs> of the Jordan. Um, but there's a sense that um, you are joining a people who are about something, and maybe we need to hold that up as part of um, the liturgies. Um, that maybe it's not doing different things because the way um, you practice confession or communion. Um, uh, or baptism, or it's it's how you understand those things. It, it's the container in which those things are received, um, uh, not merely the actions that are undergone. And I think that is hugely significant for this series, Drew. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And as I was hearing you talk, Otis, I was thinking, like, before, when me and Jared first got on the call together, I was talking a little bit about uh, my own experience and I did, I mean, I'd say my church experience, my black church experience was more complex, not so cleanly liberative, but there were aspects, right, of that that were there. Um, but it was mixed with, there was like some black evangelicalism stuff mixed in there that um, had some um, troubling inclinations that, that, that were part of the community as well. And so I had to kind of navigate and make sense of all of that and weed through, right. The really beautiful, as well as some really harmful things as well. Um, but as, as you're, um, thinking still in terms of your own, uh, communal faith community experience, um, I'm really interested to hear a little bit about how, um, your community shaped your view of God. Mm. What was it that was shaping your view of God and also um, forming you into, again, as Jared was just talking about this kind of communal, like communal discipleship. What was that? What was happening to you? How were you being formed in the midst of that? So God, and then your own formation in the midst of that community experience. No, it, the community helped me see God through the kind of artistic mosaic lens. Mm. There was a musician by the name of Barbara Collier, uh, who grew up Pentecostal, uh, had a great relationship with my father. Uh, this woman was brilliant because no matter what my father would preach on Sunday, she could pull a song, write a song, remix a song that Literally, you would think that they had been planning things together. Mm -hmm. But she believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. She said, the Holy Ghost got a hold of me. Mm -hmm. This is what we're going to say. That's uh, when you know it's a real Pentecostal. They're using the King James. Holy Ghost. <laughs> that's right. She, she was straight up Church of God in Christ. She came out Church of God. And... Um, and, and that experience witnessing 
a a, a woman uh, who was deeply possessed by the power and direction of of the spirit helped form my understanding that of God not being boxed, boxed in. And then my father and my mother, you know, my, my, my mother, uh, you know, had this expansion. She was, she's my mom's, she's hilarious. She's a firecracker. She had a chance to meet her. Um, because she was, you know, one point, you know, she had this real critique of the church. She was telling me when she was younger, she was like, I'm Unitarian, you know, I'm socialist, I'm this, I'm whatever, you know, uh, but I, you know, I work at SCLC, you know, <laughs> um, and, came, and, and came to faith in a deeper way, witnessing the marching of the feet mm-hmm. and act of prayer and a sacrament. Yeah. Uh, and having this deep relationship with, Coretta Scott King, who she believed was just one of the most brilliant thinkers and leaders that people have yet to truly recognize. Yeah. Mm. In terms yeah. of her uh of her thought and her compassion, but her knowledge of so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they all of this helped form this idea of that, that God is not in a box. And then my father is in our church. And I didn't realize how informed our church was in reference to Howard Thurman and Thurman-esque mm. encounter. Mm. I mean, it, it, it really was. Uh, and so that helped design the, this mosaic of the way in which, so God was never, God was never this old dude, you know, with a beard. Mm-hmm. You know, that was just never, that, that was just such a limited framework mm-hmm. uh, that whatever language that we use is still inadequate when we speak uh, about, about God. And, uh, and, and so that helped form the way in which uh, the knowable, unknowable, knowable, yet still unknowable God. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the way in which I was, was raised that you have encounters and you get glimpses. And if you were to preach for the rest of your years, you still would yet scratch the surface of who God is. Uh, The Bible may point, uh, but the Bible can't completely cover. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Bible may give light, but it doesn't give enough to give the fullness because we can't handle it. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it, 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 was, it was always this deep reverence and humility that be careful of thinking you got it all contained. Uh, and so there was this high view of grace and mercy um, yeah. and of, of human uh, tragedy from hubris. Mm-hmm. And we live in a moment now where arrogance plus ignorance leads our liturgy. And there's Ooh. nothing more dangerous than putting those two together. Hmm. That almost every major uh, human devastation is connected to those two virtues hmm. married. I shouldn't say married. Those two uh virtues um 
acting with friends with benefits. That, that's what they're doing. Um, and when they come together, uh, they have problems. That's powerful. Um, this is so incredibly rich. I, um, I can already tell this is an episode I'm going to be going over and over and over again. Thank you so much for your time, OM3. Like th this is an incredible gift for us and really sets up um, the future of this series as we want to explore what are the things that um, form us that we're unconscious of and form our unconscious. Um, and what is it for the church to actually undergo formations that can make us aware um, uh, without um, it becoming a game of control uh, and, a, and a game of coercion and, and a game of um, uh, instead of standing under something, pretending that understanding is a power play. Um, uh, maybe we'll end with this last question and um, uh, re release you to your loving family. Um, I mean, these people are here because they want to spend time with you and you've been so generous with your time. But uh, if you have time for some Q&A with people afterwards. Oh, I, um, I would people, love that. I would love oh, that. Oh, that would be wonderful as well. Well, let me get out of the way and I'll end with this. Um, th these traditions that have formed you um, uh, and the uh, I've really heard you honour both your, your mum and your dad in terms of who um, ha has formed you and that larger village that... Um, they curated and facilitated uh, for the building up of the body to bless uh, bless and rebuild the city. Um, what gifts out of that experience um, would you encourage those of us coming from different traditions to take seriously? Um, in this ecological crisis where we find uh, that those who do have their backs against the wall are facing a more difficult reality day by day um uh what would you ask us not to lose but pay attention to out of the things that have formed you as we consider our own formation mm, mm, mm. I, I would say do not define the faith community you may rest in or the faith community that you come from as preacher and board hmm. there is an elder waiting for you to tell her story and know her story that will empower you there is a young person uh, who has many gifts that just wants to be affirmed Learning the once you learn people's stories, uh, I think you get a chance to see what Flannery O'Connor was saying that in these disruptive uh, moments of of the tragic, grace keeps pop coming through, mm -hmm. and I think that that's what we have to begin to take hold of these amazing stories, and they're the amazing ones are not in the pulpit. The amazing ones are in the community. The amazing ones are in, in the kitchen. The amazing ones are the, in the man that is, you know, taking care of the grounds and loves taking care of those flowers. That's the story. That's the church. Those are the spaces where we encounter the sacred in those stories. 
And when those people pass away, it becomes our responsibility to share their story. I have to tell the story of Barbara Collier. I have to tell the story of, of, um, of Aunt Clarice and uh, uh, Uncle Hoover, with deacons and servants. At, at the, I have to tell their stories uh, and what they gave and the, the depth of their, of their theology that uh, we have to become students of the story again. Because we make this claim that we lift up scripture, these, this collection of stories, and we tell the same doggone story every week. I know in the Bible, <laughs> if I stand up in my church and I say, he picked you up, everybody else is going to say, turn me around. I mean, they're going to say That's that. Right. <laughs> they want to hear a story. Yeah. We're going to tell the same story over and over again. Um, but we know that there's power in that story. Mm-hmm. There's beauty in, the, in that story. And we have to reclaim all of our stories, our family stories, some of the s- stories of blues, but mm-hmm. adds gospel to it. Keep mm-hmm. the same lyrics, but just keep the same chords, but change the lyrics. There's mm. all stories wherever you are, and you're going to find in the cracks that there's this beautiful light sh- coming through on those stories. And that light, if we catch it at the right moment, we can get a glimpse of what God's doing. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And in many ways that uh, to bring it full circle, that's I feel like that's the work that you're doing through your book, right? Dancing in the Dark. It's uh, doing exactly that. I think I told you um, it was yesterday through DM, you know, that the book is terrific. This is beautiful. And I know it's going to be such mm-hmm. a gift uh, to so many folks. And so and I'm sure it already is. It will continue to be. And so thank you again for just your ongoing ministry, your gifts into the world, the ways that in the midst of so much harm that we see, all the cycles of violence and oppression, um, you continue to inspire, encourage, and gesture us towards liberation. And so, um, yeah, blessings in your ministry, and thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was an absolute delight to be with you all. And I have such love and respect uh, for the work that you all do. So just to be in your presence, just just really energizes and blesses and blesses me. And uh, Jared, tell your crew I said hello, man. And uh, oh, I will tell, tell, tell them no, I had. Well, first tell Cat I said hello. We're Cat. But tell your crew, your boys, we said we said hello, especially that the little guys. Uh, I will. I will. Um, Kat will be over the moon to hear that. And we've loved reading your book together. And um, Kat would want to uh, me to remind everyone that another offering that um, you've given this world at this time is sharing Howard Thurman's work through this new podcast, um, which uh, you, you've been sharing at Trinity through the announcements. And Kat was like, oh, that looks really um, good. Um, w- would you just mention that so people can, sure. uh, as well as downloading Inverse, download this podcast? Uh, <laughs> we would love that. Oh, please download the inverse front. No, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we started a, a podcast, uh, The Inward Journey, all things Howard Thurman. One of the things that I wanted to to hopefully do is introduce Howard Thurman to, to a new generation. I grew up listening to Howard Thurman, not because I knew him personally or anything of that nature, but 
whenever we went on family trips, my father would put in a Howard Thurman thing. <laughs> uh, he had one of the largest collections of, of, of Thurman sermons and meditations, and he donated that to Morehouse College. Wow. So I had the opportunity to, to literally hear Thurman's voice growing up. Mm -hmm. And I wanted, I, I want, you know, for another generation of people to be able to do that. And so we uh, record people reading Thurman meditations mm -hmm. and the impact that Thurman had on them. And we are also pulling from the uh, Boston uh, University uh, Library of, of Thurman meditations and sermons. Uh, so we're we're looking forward to 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 that podcast. I think they have it on Spotify now. Uh, mm -hmm. But please also uh, subscribe to the Inverse Podcast uh, <laughs> with the the dynamic duo, the Wonder Twins of Jared Drew. <laughs> and when they touch fists, they say "form of liberation," and someone that says "form of transformation," uh, <laughs> in reference to uh, the powers that they have. Uh, and then also after you, uh, you know, subscribe to the Inverse podcast, there's this great book you all need. Yes, to there is. It's yes, wonderful. There is. Faith Unleavened. You have to pick this book up. Ooh. It's phenomenal. Uh, so you definitely want to do that. But uh, please just support the stuff that is happening in and around this community. Uh, that is so generous. Thank you, Otis. Um, I don't know if um, Sister no, Abernathy like, made it with us uh, or not, but I can no. still hear her, even though she's not present, saying, somebody better pray and wrap up this meeting like, but before we open it up for questions. Um, would you be willing to, to do that for us before we open up for a Q&A time? I'd be happy to. Dr. Dr. Moss, yep. that, that's aimed at you. Oh, you're, oh, you're asking me to pray. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to. Thank Absolutely. <clears throat> Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and most merciful God, in whom we live, move, and have our very being, we are grateful uh, for the ways in which you stir up uh, beautiful and wonderful, uh, holy inspired mischief. You cause us to question. And you cause us to trust, you cause us to yield, you cause us to love. May your spirit rest upon all those who are part of this inverse community. May their imaginations be released to see new possibilities. And may they learn to uh, create and curate uh, the songs of yesterday and new songs of tomorrow. And may they also learn the beauty and power of preparing the meals and also the recipes that were passed on through their tradition to serve and nourish a new generation. I thank you for these two amazing hosts of Drew and Jared. And may they continue to do the work that opens doors and wipes tears from people's eyes. We thank you and we love you and we offer this prayer in the mighty, wonderful, liberating, salvific, healing, beautiful, humbling name of Jesus, who is the Christ and the people of God who love God may say, Amen. Amen. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down. Why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.